On today's episode, we have Clinton Smout for one of our rider skills segments. Clinton has tips for turning our motorcycles around, particularly in low traction environments in a tight space. Read dirt, gravel, leaves, you know, low traction stuff. And afterwards, you get a chance to have a chuckle or two about Clinton's mistakes, or you could say maybe the learning curve of life. But he's pretty candid about what happened when he had a blind student ride directly into a lake or when his bow to a foreign speaking CEO cost him a decade of business. There's a few more as well. After that, I sit down with Lisa and Simon Thomas, two of the world's longest running motorcycle travelers, having been on the road for 15 years now. We're going to have a chat about, after all this time on the road, exactly what they're carrying in their panniers. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system, and it's easy to swap from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding, and that's gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate the flat tire in less than three minutes, made in the USA, and comes with a lifetime warranty. Best Rest is also the North American distributor for Googletech filters. Their website, www.cyclepump.com. www.cyclepump.com. I'm Sam Manning. I'm Phil. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Pat Jake. Robert Schwanz. Nathan Millwall. Nathan Postel. Nick Coach. Sterling Noreen. Grant Johnson. Thank you. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free www.maxbmw.com That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com And now for another of Adventure Rider Radio's exclusive rider skills segments where we talk methods and ideas that can help improve your riding skills. And of course, this segment is not meant to be a substitute for professional training or an endorsement of any particular technique. These are ideas and concepts that if you choose to try, you're clearly doing so at your own risk. Today, we've got Clinton Smout. Now, we're going to talk about turning motorcycles around, and particularly in low traction areas, in tight spaces. And afterwards, it's fun because we're going to talk with Clinton about, well, I mean, he's a pro, but even pros make mistakes and have problems. And we've got some just incredibly funny things that have happened to Clinton over the years that we're going to talk about at the end of it. So stick around. Clinton, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. 
Oh, glad to be here, Jim. So it's not exactly riding time where you are right now, is it? No, I just got off a snowmobile. <laughs> so, so the motorcycle thing, does it just go to your mind come this time of year when the snow starts to fly? Yeah, it does. Um, other than we travel to motorcycle shows in Canada. So for the next few weeks, we're in Western Canada. And what I do is do rider training tips on a big Yamaha in a small area, how to pick up a fallen motorcycle, which I don't want to brag, but I'm an expert at crashing. So I teach people how to pick it up properly, stuff like that, sharp turns, emergency braking. And we discuss the top three ways of not being killed on your street bike. So I'm riding, but only in first gear. <laughs> and you said you, you just got off a snowmobile, but you're a certified instructor for snowmobiling as well. Yes. So back home in Ontario, we just flew back from Calgary yesterday. Um, today we had people who work at a ski resort and are given snowmobiles. So I certified them. So how to stop and turn on a hill how to get it unstuck, how to put a belt on, things like that. Yeah, so so when you go to the shows for the bikes, it's it's sort of like, you know, your little taste of motorcycling, even though, you like you said, you're in first gear. Exactly, yeah, it's still fun. I get to ride a little. <laughs> well, what we're talking about today is turning our bikes around, and, and that's a first gear turn, right? Yes, absolutely. So turning them around, I, I think we're going to discuss, we're, we've got two options, do we? Yeah, two or three, but I think what might be relevant is a lot of people struggle with tight turns. And I'm sure we've all seen that rider who puts both feet down on the approach to the turn and they run out of pavement or dirt and they end up up against the curb or at the edge of the trail. Then they have to pull the clutch in and tippy-toe the bike back, kind of a three-point turn. And big adventure bikes fully loaded or with a passenger, that's really hard to do. So there are some tips that people could practice on their own for turning a big, heavy motorcycle, whether it's pavement or dirt. And also, that's the time, uh, or it can be the time, where the bike is unstable and you can end up dropping it just turning around. Exactly. It's very, very common. If you're turning left, if the bike's going to go down, it usually tips over to the left. So what we'd like people to envision is they're riding along and they want to turn left and go back the same direction they just came. Um, we pretend that you're a transport truck driver and you need a lot of room to get the back end of the vehicle turned around. So we would recommend meander over to the right to maximize your turning space when you turn left. Then as you're slowing down, we're big advocates of controlling your speed on a motorcycle in first gear with your left hand, two fingers over the clutch, and we slip the clutch in riding it. Scrub some speed with rear brake. So as we approach our turn, we're not going very fast, but we're not, we're just above a walking pace because if you put along too slow, you lose that momentum. The bike is quite jerky and you're more likely to have problems. We don't want you to leave the clutch all the way out because even a big motorcycle at idle, that may be 10, 12 kilometers an hour, that's too fast for a tight turn. We want it at five or six. So that means slipping the clutch in and riding the clutch. 
The second component that's really important once you've got your speed under control is your eyes. And I laughed today. Uh, there was a gentleman struggling with turning a snowmobile. And I said, where should your eyes be? And he said, uh, right above your nose, which is very true. But <laughs> what we think is you should put your chin on your shoulder, turn your head in the direction that you're turning. So just as you approach and you're starting to do your turn, look all the way around back towards your coming. Your side or peripheral vision will tell you what's on the right, but we really want to look around the turn. What happens with a lot of riders is we look over at our headlights and we target fixate on the trees, ditch, or sidewalk, and you'll go where you look. So the vision experts say the best clarity of focus is the center of our eyeballs. So that means you have to turn your head to get the center of the eyeball looking where you want your motorcycle to go. So you steer with your eyes. It is surprising with that, isn't it, how you, you do tend to end up where you look. I mean, how many times have you ridden along, seen a rock coming up, and if you fixate on it, you run right over it. It's, a, it's one rock in the middle of a wide trail, and you manage to hit it dead on. Yeah, and I think that's why dirt riders, trail riders, who have some experience before they get on the pavement, they're less likely to hit potholes in that muffler that's falling off the truck. As an experienced off-road rider knows that you have to turn your eyes in your head and look where you want to go. If you fixate on the tree, you're going to hit it because it's target fixation. It's very common in our sport. But you do need to see that the 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 path is clear, or at least to see what's there. In other words, if you're going to turn around in a spot where there's loose rocks or maybe there's a bit of grass on the side, that's something you need to spot and you need to be aware of before you're doing your turn. Absolutely. And you take all that in on the approach. What kind of terrain? How wide can I go? Or is it muddy over there? That All that information you see with your head up. But if you're looking down at the front wheel to look at what the traction is, you're in big trouble because you have no steering kind of judgment of when to start the turn if your eyes are down. You're supposed to see that terrain on the approach to it, not when it's right in front of your tire, because it's it's not enough time to react anyway at that point. Right. So, okay, let's let's go through this sort of step by step, because I, I know we, we didn't talk about um, counterweighting there. So we pull yes. up as we're heading up to the spot where we want to turn around. Obviously, we're going to look for the widest spot, the best spot that we can figure out. I think most people will do that automatically um, as, yes. they, as they approach that. Then you scrub off speed. Exactly. Now, a lot of people will just chop the throttle, put some brakes on, and then pull the clutch right to the bar. Or they leave the clutch out completely. And most bigger bikes won't turn a really tight turn smoothly with the clutch out, it'll start chugging and lurching and your throttle application can be very jerky when the clutch is out. First gear throttle application is very sensitive. Third gear, not as jerky, but we can't take the corner in third, it's gonna stall out. So we are big advocates of learning how to ride the clutch. So our first lesson with adventure bike folks in a two day course, is to have them stand on the left side of their motorcycle, first gear, 
two fingers over their clutch, throttle just above idle, and you take your motorcycle for a walk. And we try to get the concept of you control your speed in first with your left hand, not your right hand. And a lot of people come back to us and say, well, it'll fry my clutch. No, it won't. If you're in a big Chevy truck with a standard, you shouldn't drive it with the clutch partially in. It'll heat up too much and fry. An adventure bike, even the heaviest, is minuscule weight compared to a car or truck. So the only way you'll ruin a clutch on your motorcycle is if you have your foot on the brake the entire time that you're riding or you're stuck in the sand in the mud, you have a lot of throttle on and you're fanning the clutch with high revs, that will fry it. What I'm talking about is your throttle is constant, just above idle, and you're controlling the speed or power delivery to the back wheel with the two fingers of your left hand. Now, when we're talking when we're talking about the difference between the Chevy truck and the motorcycle too, is the motorcycle for the most part, for most of them, they're all wet clutches. I know that some of the big BMWs are dry clutches, but most of them are, are wet clutches, and that's what we're talking about. Whereas in the Chevy truck, it's a dry clutch. Wet clutch is lubricated, so it's it's meant to do some slipping. Same as an automatic transmission, which is the same sort of thing. It's a, exactly. a wet clutch. There's also a torque yes. converter, but um, it allows for slippage. So, yeah, a lot more leeway there. So that's a really good point. That's got to be one of the most difficult things, like for a beginner to get the hang of, isn't it? Yes, it is. I think, but within 10 minutes, the light bulb goes off. You see it in their eyes, and they've got that skill of being able to slip the clutch in just a little. The power is still hooked up. We're not saying pull it right to the bar because then the bike just falls over in a turn with lack of momentum. But taking a tight turn with the clutch all the way out is very hard to do because a little bit of throttle and then it's going to stand up and go wide. So it's a skill that's easier to teach a novice than it is to teach a seasoned rider who's never done it before because they think they're going to fry it. Mm. And the thing is that once you learn that, that's useful in so many places that you ride. I mean, off-road, you get into a sticky situation. That's where you'll slip the clutch to climb up a rock to give yourself more control, but keep your engine RPM up. And it's just used everywhere. Exactly. But um, I'd say 50% of the people that we meet who are taking a two-day adventure bike course, it's a very foreign concept to them. Because they were told at their novice two-day get-your-license course, no fingers are allowed on the levers when you're riding. And I think that's nonsense. Mm, yeah, that's a, well, that's a, another topic there altogether. And also, if you, if you went and, and your dad taught you how to drive the truck <laughs> or the car and you had a standard when you first learned yes. to drive, it's get off the clutch. Yeah, that's what my dad, and he'd give me a little flip in the ear. So when I first got my first car was a standard, I would duck my head every time I shifted. <laughs> so, so, okay. So slipping the clutch, that's, that's important. We're going to use that. What's the other really important thing we have to do while turning around in a tight turn? The eyes. Once you've got your speed under control, you've got to see where you can do your turn and your destination. The objective has to be given to the brain through the center of the eyeball. Because if your head is down, you could go wide into the trees or on the sidewalk and not realize it until you're right there. Then you have to stop. So 
the point I make to students is put your chin right on your shoulder. So you're looking around behind you. That's where you want to end up. So that's your final goal. We must look around our turn. Get your head turned around so the center of the eyeball sees the goal of where we want to go. You can't look at the ditch or the sidewalk or the trees because that's where you'll end up. And that's counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, you you tend to want to look where that front wheel is going to roll. But the trick is, as you said, is to look at it in advance, pick your route, and then look where you want to go. Exactly. So what we do for practicing is set up some pylons in a big circle and have people just rotate left first. Left is always easier for a motorcyclist. Turning right, your elbow and hand is tight to your body. It's much, much harder to do. So turn left in a circle and go around and around very smoothly to the point where with riding the clutch, your eyes are taking you where you want to go. Chin on the shoulder, very important. Okay, so we've come in, we've, we've slowed down, we're slipping clutch, we're using our eyes. Um, what about counterweighting? Yeah, that's step number three. Because our motorcycle tires are kind of rounded shape compared to a truck or car tire. In order to turn, a motorcycle must be leaned over at any speed. So at slow speed, we're going to get a tighter turn if we lean the motorcycle in the direction we want to go. Because the part of the sidewall that then is making contact with the ground, if you measure that part of the tire in circumference, it's a couple of inches shorter than if you're straight up and down in the flat part of the center of the tire is turning. So by leaning over, it allows us to turn sharper. Now at 80 kilometers an hour, we can lean over on the pavement enough to drag our knee. Even on a gravel road, you can lean a motorcycle quite a bit. But at two or three or five kilometers an hour, if you lean the motorcycle over without counterbalancing, you're going to have to put your foot down. So if we're turning left, you slip the clutch, you get your eyes. The third component is as you lean the motorcycle to the left, your butt comes right off the seat to the right-hand side of the motorcycle, what we call the high side. So that means my left arm would be straight. My right arm is crook. So I'm leaning the bike in and I hang off the high side. And that's the best way to prevent the bike from tipping over. Now, some people go a little further and use the method of lifting the inside foot completely off the peg. Yeah, that helps too. We do it on snowmobiles, everything. Anything that concentrates your body mass on the side of the motorcycle where you want it. Don't you think that gets confusing, though, for a, for a rider? Like, unless they're, they're highly skilled to get into the corner, lift their foot off, because then they got to find that peg again. Exactly. The only time we do the foot off the peg is really advanced, tight, tight turns. Like, you're almost dragging the foot peg at slow speed. Then you climb onto the other side of the bike with a foot off. But for most of us that are just doing a turn on our adventure bikes on a trail or gravel road, you don't need to lift the foot off, but you do need to get your body weight to the high side of the bike. I find it easier to do while standing 
because the length of your legs allow the body to move off the motorcycle easier than when sitting down. But standing, unless you do it a lot, that may be adding a, a level of difficulty that makes the turn harder. So we, we practice it sitting down first and then later on in the course, tight turns while standing. So the concept here of counterweighting is moving the weight to the outside. So in other words, it's, it's sort of making it like your bike is vertical at that point, isn't it? As you swing that weight to the outside, that could, the whole idea of counterbalancing is to change the weight so that the weight is directly over the contact patch. Exactly. An easy way to visualize it is you're creating a V. If you're turning left, the motorcycle is the left stick of a V and your body is the right hand side. So you're counterbalancing, equalizing the weight distribution to the left with your body to the right. So looking at a rider doing it, there should be a V shape. Most people simply lean the motorcycle to the left, but their nose and body is over the center of the bike, over the gas cap. That will make you want to put your left foot down on the ground as the motorcycle tips over. So counterbalancing is really important for tight turns. And then it's even extra important if it's soft terrain. Because on pavement, you can get away with not leaning as much to the opposite way because you get sure traction. But on an adventure bike in gravel or sand, as you turn to the left in our example, your front wheel is going to slide to the right. That causes the motorcycle to fall to the left. You have to put your foot down and you fall off. So what we emphasize on soft terrain is really hang off the motorcycle to the right, to really hang off the bike. And we, we practice that statically, just with a side stand. It's already going to the left. We're going to practice left turns first. Turn your bars to full lock when sitting on the side stand and get comfortable with hanging off the bike to the brake side. That way it's not such a shock once you're moving and you try to do it. The other thing we do which really helps is a lot of people are used to riding slowly in a straight line with both feet off the pegs. Um, we think that's a no-no because the only brake you have left to use is your front brake. And that's where a lot of people crash. So to motivate riders to keep their feet up, we use bungee cords. We wrap your boots to the... No, I forgot. We're not allowed to do that anymore either. <laughs> but you could use a psychological bungee cord. When, when you move off with your brain, lock your boots onto those pegs. They shouldn't be coming off for any reason unless you're stopping. Now, when you're doing the turn in low traction, we're talking about counterweighting. So you're counterweighting to the outside. Are you moving your weight more to the front, the middle, or the back of the bike on the turn? I would say the middle only because you, if you're standing, you can adjust it a little. But your weight is best over the foot pegs. That's where mass centralization manufacturers for years have tried to get the weight down under the engine by the foot pegs for the rider. And that way the bike is better balanced at any speed, whether it's turning or touring on a highway. And then people put a case of beer on their front fender, which is 
crazy or they fill a top box with all their camping gear and wonder why their bike doesn't handle anymore. Um, I hate top boxes and stuff on the front of the bike. In case you didn't guess. But, <laughs> what do you mean on the front of the bike? Are you talking like like extreme stuff that people mount way up front? Or are you talking tank bags? Yes. Oh, I love a tank bag. That's a great spot to have cameras and equipment that are important. And then I unclip it and take it into the restaurant with maps, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, tight turns, your body mass should be centered over the bike. If you're going downhill, turning off camber, then everything changes. You can weight the back or front, depending on. But for flat ground turns, uh, your best bet is to practice it sitting down. And then once that's comfortable, you've got that whole clutch slippage, eyes and counterbalance, then try standing as you're doing it. So you mentioned already that one of the first things you do is get people to walk their bike, take their bike for a walk, slipping the clutch and learning yes. to use the very little RPM. Um, so you're just over idle and you're slipping the clutch and using that to move your bike. The next skill, and I, and I guess you'll learn this as you go, is learning to turn your head. That, that's where an instructor is great because the instructor can point it out to you. You know, you don't realize there's a lot to pay attention to and you don't realize what you're doing. The instructor can tell you, hey, you've got to keep your head turned. You're not looking in the right spot, etc. So the eyes, yeah. the counterbalance and, and the eyes. And so, so that's something you, you can practice on your own, even making a regular corner, because it's something you should be doing on the street as well as physically turning your Absolutely. head into your corner. Now, counterbalance, wh- how does a person practice the counter- counterbalance? You talked about using the, the side stand. Yeah, engines off just to get the feel of hanging off the bike and then do it gradually. The hardest turn to make is full lock. So you're better to do a wide turn and then slowly narrow it down, increase your turning radius and decrease the area that you turn. And the secret there is to do it gradually, build up. So we start with a great big circle. You could turn a truck in, but by the end, we have people at full lock and they don't tip over because they've got clutch control, good eyes, and they're hanging off the bike. And they just can't believe that they can do that with a motorcycle. How many hours do you think it takes to get to that point? Well, if you just keep practicing it and it's not 100% successful, then you can get pretty depressed and discouraged. So we break it up. We'll do 10 minutes of walking the bike, then ride some big circles. We introduce more of slipping the clutch eyes and counterbalance. Then we switch it to a slalom where the pylons are three meters apart. By the time they leave us, we're down to two meters. So there's no way you could zig and zag through this slalom if your clutch was out. Because at idle speed, 10 kilometers an hour, let's say, that's too fast. You can't react in time and you'll be knocking pylons over like crazy. So it's a gradual buildup of skill demands, but start with wide circles and then get them smaller and smaller. And of course, what we practice to the left, we've got to practice to the right. Yeah, we start with the left because if you ask people to do the right right away, there's more um, chance of being discouraged and less success. So once you can do it to the left, you should try it to the right. But, you know, in Western civilizations, we're usually on the right-hand side of a trail or road, turning to the left to go the other way. 
So maybe in Britain or Australia, you're on the left side of the road. You should practice your right turns more than here. <laughs> but it is much harder to turn uh, sharply to the right than it is to the left for most people. Yeah, that has something to do with, I, I think, with the brake as well, being on your right-hand side, doesn't it? It is harder. Yeah, brake slides, for instance, are, are tougher going to the right because your foot and your hand on your throttle is up close to your body. It's it is harder turning right. And maybe that's why speedway flat track racing is always to the left because the throttle's right. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned hills now, inclines. Is there a different technique for that? Yeah. The cambered slope, we, we do this skill on there. The different big difference is, is when turning, we now have gravity as a force to counteract. So if we're going up a hill and turning to the left, normally you would lean to the left in order to help the bike turn. But on a hill, you definitely want to lean way uphill. So you hang off the right-hand side of the motorcycle even more than you would on flat ground at slow speed. Now, the more speed you have on a hill while you're turning, the physics kick in. So centrifugal force will keep keep you and the motorcycle upright. You don't have to lean up the hill as far or as much. But if you're only doing five miles an hour, six kilometers an hour, you still have to lean uphill or when turning, the bike will drop. You mentioned that you're a professional, I guess, at dropping bikes. Um, oh, very good. Very experienced, Jim. Do you drop more on the left or the right? Hmm. I think because I'm generally uh, turning left in demos and things like that, I probably fall off to the left or go to put my foot down on the left. So I think I would turn, as I'm turning left, I probably crash more than right. Hmm. But I'm equally good at both. That's what I find. Is, is It seems like my bike takes more of a beating on the left side than it does the right. Yeah. And, and maybe it's because of our preference of turning. It's it's that way, but um, I fall on purpose at these motorcycle shows. I illustrate a common crash in a parking lot. So I have both feet down. As I'm turning, I grab the front brake hard and it slides out. And I try to time it over a piece of carpet because I don't want to scratch up the brand new bike that Yamaha has lent me. And then I show people how to pick up the motorcycle the different methods, um, either with your butt on the seat and back it up, or with, we use the handlebar lift for adventure bikes. How long have you been doing motorcycle instruction? Oh, my goodness. I started teaching street rider training in 1982. But in my neighborhood, we lived in the country. And when somebody got a bike, they would say, well, go ask Clinton. He'll show you how the clutch thingy works. So I've been teaching most of my life, but 35 years, so-called professionally, where somebody was paying me to do it. And then uh, 24 years of off-road training. Oh, wow. It's a long time. You, you must have seen a lot of uh, a lot of different things. I mean, you make a lot of jokes about different ways to, to keep people's attention, etc. You must have come across a, a lot of bizarre things. Yeah, some really cool things. That's what's great about teaching is people show up to the course with a wide variety of riding experiences. And a lot of us are freaked out by the last crash we had. So it's, 
it's rewarding job if you can get someone over top of that hurdle where people say, no, no, I don't do downhills. I had a bad crash. So if we start on flat ground using the front brake to control the speed, not the rear, by the time we get to a small knoll, not a big steep hill, front brake is easy to control the speed going down. So it's a slow acquisition of skill. And they don't realize that their confidence is building, building, building until they realize, hey, wow, I can do this. That's a really rewarding job. Yeah. What's the story I heard about um, you bowing over and, and, and having an incident? Oh, yes. I think you're referring to, I was asked as a chief instructor by a manu- manufacturer to attend a dealer meeting. The dealer meetings are usually in the fall. All the dealers in Canada or the U.S., or the U.S. does it in halves, but in Canada, most of them show up at one location and they're wined and dined and they see all the new models and often get to test ride the new models. So just, I think it was 1999, there was a new ATV model by this particular manufacturer and they asked me to come to scout out a good route to take the dealers on a safe but enjoyable test ride. So we had 80 ATVs and two buses would show up over the course of a week. There was a total of 600 dealers. So we did a lot of them. It was nonstop. So I had five staff. I was leading this particular time and we all were connected by radios. And I got a call on the radio from base camp Clinton, you've got to race back here because the president himself wants to try the new ATV. That wasn't on the planned agenda for the week. And all of the executives were scared to show him the ATV. They thought, well, let's get that chief instructor guy. They may have been thinking if anything went wrong, you know what? It's not us. It's that guy. And boy, did it go wrong. Um, So they're screaming at me to race back because the limo was coming. And it was almost a red carpet. As I came over the hill to our staging area, there was five or six gentlemen in suits waiting to greet the president who had just flown in to this area. And uh, I won't mention what brand it was because I wouldn't want to embarrass everybody other than myself, which I'm very good at. So... As I jumped off my ATV, I'm covered in mud. I didn't even get my helmet off um, because they're screaming at me over the radio to get back. And as I watched, he had someone as a translator greeter who would explain which each of these gentlemen in suits, who they were, and each North American, because there was um, there was executives from the United States and Canada there, president of sales, vice president of marketing, whatever. And each time they shook the hand of this gentleman, he would bow. But none of the North Americans bowed back. And I thought, I'm British. You know, if you're meeting the queen, there should be the proper bow or curtsy. And I thought, this was odd. Why isn't anyone bowing back? So when it came my turn, the person with the president said, uh, Tamiki-san, this is Clinton. He's our instructor. He's going to show you how to ride the new ATV. And he said, you know, very nice to meet you. Shook my hand and he bowed. Well, I bowed as well. 
and there was a little timing issue. So the peak of my motocross helmet smoked him right above the eyes and knocked him onto the ground. It knocked him down on the ground. Knocked him down on the ground. He, he was a diminutive person, not a very big, tall person, and, and I am. And I, of course, I was mortified and all hell broke loose. The <laughs> North American executive in charge of sales for this company leaped to help this gentleman up just as I was diving down. So I smoked him in the side of the head. <laughs> he didn't fall, but he had a, quite a bruise. And the poor guy finally stood up and he's shaking everyone off, brushing off his gorgeous Italian suit, which was now covered in dirt. And he said he was fine, not to worry about it. And I uh, trained him how to ride, lent him some riding gear, got him riding, moving out in the trails a little bit in the mud so he could see what this new ATV was capable of. It really was amazing. It had push-button gear changing. And when we came back, I again apologized. And he said, I'll never forget, uh, don't worry you still have friend with me, you very good rider. And that's how it left. But that company didn't hire me for about 10 years until all those executives present had retired. And now the new people, they don't know that story. So right. that's another reason I'm not telling you what brand it was. <laughs> that's hilarious. It's a good thing you don't work with the drug cartel. Yes, that's true. <laughs> or the yeah. mafia. That, that'll be it. That'll be your last job ever. <laughs> but I learned, take your helmet off when you're meeting people. But I was in such a rush, I never thought to. And don't bow. I learned you're not supposed to. Wow, that's great. <laughs> They're supposed to. <laughs> well, I, I remember um, seeing something about, um, was there a blind person you were teaching to ride or something? Yeah, it's. we had a family years ago come for off-road rider training and everybody had a great time. The dad was a racer, but no one else of the three children and his spouse had ridden. So by the end, they all rode together and they had a riot. And they're talking about buying bikes for the family. And then the mom said, quite sadly, oh, man, we have to go home now. And Cameron is at home. I'm thinking, who's Cameron? Oh, he's our eight-year-old. Uh, he couldn't come. And I, I asked why. It's because he's blind. And he was very upset because he got his brothers to read the prerequisites of a student coming to our off-road course on our website. Nowhere on our website does it say you have to be able to see. I never thought to put that. And this kid wanted to come dirt biking with his family and his mom wouldn't let him. And the prerequisite we talk of is you should be a good on, good on a bicycle. And that's about it. We'll take care of everything else. And I thought about this, the gumption of this little guy wanting to ride because he does ride a bicycle. He crashes everywhere, but he does ride one. Oh, wow. So I thought about it and I phoned the mom and said, if you would be okay with it, I think I could teach your son how to ride, not on a motorcycle. Let's try a little ATV first. So I asked Yamaha about it because I knew they just brought out this new product called a Raptor 50. It's an automatic. I could put a governor on it. And there's even a tether stroke at the back of the ATV. But if you pull the cord, the kill switch kicks in. So it's designed for parents could walk behind their daughter or son and pull the cord if they're getting carried away. 
So we planned this at the end of a motocross teaching day, and I had lots of helpers. And we got Cameron on this little ATV. I let him ride without gloves so he'd have the the dexterity and the tactile feel of the kill switch and the brakes and the throttle. I only showed him once where the kill switch was, and then I would get him to start it up, gas on, off, stop, kill switch. Was it in neutral? He never missed any of the hand-required components. Nice. It was amazing to watch. And he also, he did everything by hearing, of course, once we started training. So it was very bizarre to watch because as an instructor, we're used to kind of watching the front of the helmet look over the front of the vehicle. And he had his head completely turned so his best ear could hear my instructions. And what was funny was um, in in those days, we didn't use radios. Now for blind people, we use radios. So we strap a big Motorola, turn the volume wide open on the front of the ATV. And then I hold one or the staff hold one so they can hear your commands easily. In those days, we just used whistles. One long whistle was stop, two, turn to the right, three, turn to the left. And what we told Cameron was if your right arm is straight out, you're going to turn a 90 degree corner with to the left. And uh, so we got them bombing around in a great big field. And we knew that this was the first time that I'd heard of anybody doing this. It had to be successful if we were ever going to do it again. And it was funny, an executive who's now retired at Yamaha said, Clinton, take some pictures if it's successful. Because we'll promote, you know, we'll say what a great ATV and look what we did. But he didn't want to hear about it if it went bad. (laughs) (laughs) But it went fantastic. I had... Instead of hay bales, I had five instructors and some teenagers from our motocross camp in a great big circle. And I taught them, if he gets away from me, as the ATV is coming at you, hit the front hand levers with your hands. That'll put both brakes on and hit the kill switch. But he was a really good listener and uh, did everything perfectly. And it had rained like crazy the day before. So that was his favorite thing, just squealing with delight as he splashed the ATV through the big puddles and it was going all over his face. <clears throat> so that was a very successful attempt. The following year, he was staying at a blind camp half an hour from where I was teaching was a camp for the deaf, where we, we teach the deaf how to ride motorcycles. And so Cameron's family brought him and he's the only guy can ride because that's his special time. The siblings could come to our regular school. The sad part was we had no rain for weeks and the best part, the puddles wasn't there. So I got permission from the deaf camp proprietor. If there's nobody on the beach, can I run Cameron just in a six inches of water at the edge of the lake? And everybody was okay. And we had a lifeguard there just in case. And Cameron says it was my fault. (laughs) I think he misinterpreted the whistles and he turned right into the lake wide open. Which on a four stroke, you don't want to put your motorcycle in the lake with the engine screaming because you could bend stuff. But 
Luckily, it snuffed out before it bent the connecting rock because that would have been very expensive. Wow. How far out did he get? Uh, well, it went, he was giggling. The, the handlebars you could still see, but he was completely <laughs> soaked and the ATV was underwater. So, yeah, <laughs> but it was re- very rewarding. And uh, our staff have taught now 4,000 people who are deaf to ride uh, motorcycles. Uh, a portion of them we get on ATVs. Sometimes deafness will affect your balance. So they might not have had exposure to a bicycle before they come up to camp. They just have a riot. And if you see these kids bombing around this monster training area we have, you can't tell of any kind of limitation they might have. So they're just kids getting dirty, having fun. That's amazing. You, you said something about for blind people. Like you sort of referred to it as if you, that was a program you are going to run. Yeah, we, we have done quite a few more. Uh, the last one... We had a call, Miss Teen Canada is some kind of pageant, and uh, a Greyhound bus showed up with 30 of these young ladies from across Canada. I think they were about age 15 or 16 to 18, delegates from all over Canada. And the one of the participants from Ontario, a girl named Molly, had recently been afflicted by retinitis pigmentosa, which is initially it's tunnel vision and eventually the tunnel closes and you're completely blind. So I think she was 16 or 17. She'd been blind for a year. So she was just learning Braille. And when everybody else came, um, she just stayed on the bus. And I asked, why is there one girl sitting on the bus? Oh, that's Molly. She's blind. So I kind of pretended that we taught hundreds of blind people. I think it was two or three by that point. (laughs) And I said, she can ride an ATV. All the other ladies were riding ATVs. And it was pouring rain, but we got rain gear, suited everybody up. So the rest of the staff taught the sighted delegates. And Molly and I spent some time just working on the controls. By this time, we'd gotten rid of the whistle system. We used radios. So I would give her directions, slight turn to the right, slight to the left, straighten up, more throttle, brakes. She was amazing. And I could hear her squeals of laughter over top of the sound of the ATV as she was buzzing round and round. Well, as the boss, if you were teaching with me, Jim, every now and then, not that I didn't trust you, but I'd look over to see how you were doing. And then I'd go back to my students. That works great if your students can see. So I uh, may have been looking over at the rest of the group to see how they were progressing. And I kind of forgot about Molly for a few seconds. And when I should have given her a turn to the right, she went straight up this hill, like a very steep hill. So when I heard the engine change in pitch, I realized something's wrong. I look over, there she is, almost cresting the hill. And so I could direct her then with the radio, just stop and hold it. And then I ran up the hill and helped her bring it down carefully. But it was really rewarding for us as an instructional team to make sure everybody had a good time. And she proved that you know blind people can do all kinds of things. Wow. That's, that's some amazing stories there. It was really fun. 
Well, before we finish up here, is there anything else that we should, um, I mean, for our exercises, we, we've got slipping the clutch, we've got um, eye control and um, counterbalancing starting in the wide circles. Is there anything else we, we should say about that? Yeah, um, throw in a little bit of dragging of the rear brake to set up your speed for the turn and then get off the brake and simply use the clutch. Mm. That's the secret. So we did some street rider parking lot YouTube videos. Um, it was for a television show and they put them on YouTube. So that's that's there under my name. There's a bunch of videos. And then we have lots of them for adventure bikes in the gravel and sand as well. Um, but the key thing is the softer the terrain, the tighter the turn increases the difficulty. You want to take the widest turn possible in soft sand or it's most likely to tip. Okay, well, that's some great tips on turning our motorcycles around in some soft uh, or uh, off-road situations, and also some wonderful stories about your teaching and mishaps. That's great fun. Thanks very much, Clinton. Great to talk to you again. My pleasure. Great talking to you, Jim. Take care. That, of course, was Clinton Smout from Smart Adventures. You can find out more about Clinton and the programs that he runs, all for ATV, snowmobiling, and, of course, motorcycling, at www.smartadventures.ca. And, of course, that link is in our show notes. take a quick two-minute break where we thank a couple of sponsors that helped bring this episode to you today. But stick around because when we come back, I'm going to talk with Lisa and Simon Thomas who've been on the road for 15 years. They live off their motorcycles and they're going to talk about what they carry in their panniers. Stay with us. Well, I've been watching the Dakar for the last few days. Pretty cool watching all these vehicles. I was amazed at the speed that the motorcycles are going. And and as I'm watching the racing, it gets me thinking about IMS products. IMS is heavily into racing. If you ever go to an off-road race, you're going to see IMS logos all over the place because I think virtually every racer, every top racer is using some sort of IMS product. They've been around since 1976. And the foot pegs that they make, they've basically got the three different versions that we're interested in. They've got the ADV pegs, which are your large, but really wide platforms. Very nice. They've got the rally pegs, which are, I guess, sort of the next size down, you could say. And then the core enduro pegs. And we're talking a full line here of foot pegs. Core enduro pegs are more if you're into heavy-duty, technical, off-road riding. Uh, if you're if you're doing more... Uh, you know, a little little bit more fire roads and maybe dirt, but not so technical where you have those tight spaces. Maybe you've got some more wide open spaces. 
look at the rally pegs. And of course, if you're into adventure riding with a loaded bike, you're doing some fire roads, but not real hardcore technical stuff. The ADV pegs give you a wide platform to control the extra weight that you have with the adventure motorcycle. Anyway, drop by their website, www.imsproducts.com. Have a look at their full lineup of pegs for us adventure riders. And anytime you're dealing with them, make sure you throw in there for our sake. Tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's imsproducts.com. Well, you better start planning your year because we're already into it. This is 2019. So look at the summer and think about what you're doing. And and coming this May, 17 to 19, is the biggest overland event you can go to, Overland Expo West in Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, That's an event you do not want to miss. There's also one in the east that goes later on in the year. But if I were you, I'd get the west one because it's the closest and it gets you inspired for the entire year. There's going to be uh, courses that you can take there. There's classes that you can sign up for, over 175 specialized classes. They've got hundreds of experts there. They've got all kinds of information for overlanding. And not only that, you get to meet a bunch of like-minded people. And this is a big event. Like I say, the biggest event that there is like it. The website is www.overlandexpo.com. And if you put off uh, after that forward slash west, then you'll go to the, the west portion of it. Either way, you're going to end up at it there and you can you can click on the link on the main page. But um, you want to buy your tickets online because that's the only way to get your tickets is online. So make sure you get in there, book your spot now, and check out the motorcycles, the four-wheel drives, and all the different classes that you can attend. Not to mention, they've got exhibitors. They've got Bill Dragoo from Dragoo Adventure Rider Training, DART, um, there to teach you how to ride a motorcycle, and particularly in off-road segments. They've got other people there like Ted Simon. Sam Manicom and Simon and Lisa Thomas, who we had on this episode. So tons to see there. You got to get online, get your tickets, www.overlandexpo.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, Simon and Lisa Thomas have been on the road traveling by motorcycle more than anyone I know of for 15 years, nonstop. They're still going with no end in sight. And after all that time on the road, you have to get things sorted out. I mean, even if you didn't want to, even if you didn't try, you've got to get things sorted out at that time just through everyday life activity. Because really, I sort of consider them living on the road more than traveling as such. But in any case, after all this time, they got their gear sorted out and we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about what they have in their panniers, how they stack their gear. Now, keep in mind, they work on the road, so they've got electronics with them, etc., which I think a lot of us want to take anyway. Even on our short trips, we like to take things with us to document our trip and possibly upload it for social media or even for our own documentation purposes. So it's applicable to us here. So Simon and Lisa, welcome back. Hey, Jim. Good to be back. How you doing? So you've been traveling around the world for uh, how many years has it been now? 15 years. 15 years. Yeah. yeah. So so 15 years. If you haven't got it sorted now, I mean, really, <laughs> I, I want to ask you. Well, what, do you know what? I think I've got it sorted, but I'm not so sure about Simon. So you guys are riding separate bikes. You both have your, your own panniers to fill. You're not having to split anything. After this yeah. long, you have to have it sorted really, really well. So I'd sort of like to run through just, you know, briefly what you're carrying in your panniers. No, you're absolutely spot on. I mean, I, I'm 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 pretty organized. Lisa 
genuinely has some kind of impressive OCD. Lisa, <laughs> Lisa can actually take everything off from the tank bags, the panniers, everything in the panniers with a blindfold at night and get it back in perfectly. It's some kind of miracle Rubik's Cube. Um, but we do carry separate things on both bikes. So my new bike is an R1200 GSA LC. Lisa's on a modified F800. Um, my left-hand pannier, which uh, if memory serves, I think is 45 litres, or is it 48? That's the 45-litre uh, one because it's changed over from the 1150. It used to be on the That's other right. side. So my yeah. left-hand pannier basically is... Um, mostly IT gear. So laptop, um, I have two 10, 10 terabyte drives in there. I've got two solid state, two terabyte drives, um, electrical connectors, cables, pretty much the stuff that I use on a daily basis that allows us to back up, record, um, and capture our journey as we move along. Um, the right-hand pannier is nothing but essential spares. Um, well, you everything. say that. It's got it's got a few other items in there. We now carry a couple of uh, well, thermos hammocks and a couple of thermos seats, and, and they go in there along that. with all the uh, additional kind of spares and bits and bobs. Yeah, no, nothing, nothing fast, but, you know, essential, essential things that – that I've decided that if something were to go wrong on the bike, if I can't get a fix, the bike is unmovable. Um, but yeah, is that, there's actually less in there now than there used to be in the past. And what's on yours? Well, well, well before we switch over to Lisa's panniers, let, let me just dig into this a little bit deeper because it doesn't sound like you have any clothes in there, Simon. We don't need no. clothes. clothes. No clothes. Okay. <laughs> we get right by that. Let, let me jump back to you said you had a bunch of spares. You really got a pannier full of spares for your motorcycle? What kind of spares? Well, actually, I, you know, thinking about it now, the answer is no, because actually when I was on my 1100-1150, then yes. Um, I mean, I was carrying things like um, ignitions. I had I had a spare coil in there. Um, I remember carrying forever in a day the O-rings and the large um, bearings for the final drive. And you had levers. Spare, yeah. spare levers, uh, spare cables, basically things that were going to stop the bike moving. Um, and all that took up space. But it's interesting, with the 1200 GSA, uh, the liquid-cooled, I'm actually carrying a fraction of those spares, largely because the final drive is less prone to issues um cables etc i've swapped over to units that fold up so even after you know a dozen spills and would you I like me had to tell you than... what you've got in that pannier would you really would, would you really like me to tell you what you you've got can? in there i think i can what cause... seriously nail it seriously down. okay okay go. we have two thermarest hammocks in the the lid bag uh, up underneath um the 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 yeah, you know, where you strap it on the lid. Um, we have the two thermorest chairs. Uh, we have the um, air filter cleaner and oil. Um, we have a hex diagnostics tool. We have a variety of straps where if you're on a, a boat, a barge or whatever, and you want to strap your bike down, we you can, can strap down. those down. The good, strong ones. Um, we have... Um, um, the, the, a we go uh, high capacity battery and jump starter kit. Uh, we do have jumper cables, uh, small ones. Uh, we have a couple of packs of rubber gloves working on the bike, so I'm going to cover them all the time. Yeah. 
Oh, we have a uh, one of those selfie stick holder things. Um, and and a we monopod. have a monopod, yes. And we have a couple of dromedary water bags because we don't use those all of the time because we don't need to fill them up all the time because, you know, especially when you're in the States. And there's a couple of other That's things. That's it, more or less. More or less. That's pretty good. A couple of bags of bits. Oh, there's some battery charger things in there as well. So a fair bit of gear. Yeah. Yeah, so still no clothes, though. No, no clothes. I like to keep my man in his riding suit or naked. <laughs> wow. Well, she's obviously talking about somebody else. So, Lisa, what do you have in yours? Um, I have a pannier, uh, which is on the right-hand mm. side, which is full of... The top lid is full of medications. Uh, I have to take quite a few medications. I have to make sure that I carry those with me all the time. Um, so that takes up quite a big bulk of Please my tell pannier. Tell Tim how many medications you're on per day. I'm not telling him that. Enough. Enough to keep me well, going. Well, as soon as you uh, say you've got a bunch of medications, it, it definitely sounds like a lot. Yeah, it is. They're, they're all prescribed medications. Of course. Nothing else. Um, and uh, so that takes up quite a lot. Uh, I have my laptop in there. I have my own hard drives and I have things like, you know, lighter fuel. I like to use a Zippo. I'm an old fashioned girl and I must have my Zippo. Uh, so I have lighter fuel for that. I have all kind of repair kits for the thermo rests and things like that, the sticky things that you need, the glue and things like that. Um, uh, I have some paperwork in there. Um, and, oh, I carry all the uh, Aliette goggles and the additional lenses that we carry. That goes in there too, easy access. Um, and I also carry oh i have to carry a, a blood pressure testing machine unfortunately i have to carry that with me and register my results um and i also carry now uh, essential oils um i carry those with me um and make extra space for them dumping a few extra things because they work very very well with our a lifestyle of being on the road and not always having the ability to get access to uh, medications, traditional and treatment, medicines, traditional medicines, etc. So, but actually, most of the time, we've yeah. actually found these to be more effective. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm a convert, and I was fairly cynical. You're, you're talking, you're talking oils for for your body, not for your bike. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. For 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 ourselves. I mean, mm -hmm. I was as I was saying to the guys yesterday. You have to remember the most important accessory for your bike is a healthy, well-trained rider. Um, and so many people go out and spend an absolute fortune on kit and gear. But yeah, if you're if you're out there riding in your own country, let alone somebody else's, um, the more focused, the healthier and fitter you are, the safer you are. It's that simple. So that's basically in that one pannier. There might be a few other things that I've, I've forgotten. That was the right pannier. Um, that was the right-hand pannier. Yeah. Come on, then. What's in your um, left? My left-hand pannier is for cooking. I carry... Uh, this a, is my favorite pannier. That's your favorite pannier, yeah. I carry a, 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 a very basic larder, um, sort of like herbs and spices and olive oil and honey and soy sauce, etc. Um, I'm going to disagree with you. What? The fact that you think it's basic does not make it basic because I guarantee Jim will agree with me. You're about to tell him what's in your pannier. Mm -hmm. And I think you have a lot more in your pannier in terms of flavors and ingredients than a lot of people have 
in their homes. In one pan alone, you have 16 different herbs and spices. I enjoy cooking. So for me, that's, it's fun to carry these things. Um, and amazing how to try and pack them all in without them taking up too much space. Because this is a small pannier. This is a 31 litre pannier. The other one was 38 litre. Um, and in there, I carry a pots and pans and a frying pan and all the utensils, etc. MSR Dragon Stove. Dragon Stove. Dragonfly. Dragonfly Stove, dragonfly, yes. MSR Dragonfly. Um, and oh, a, a coffee press. I uh, gotta have my coffee in the morning. Morning medicine. Um, and I carry coffee always. Can't run out of that. The, the, the proper coffee, not not instant stuff. You know. Oh, gotta have proper stuff. Um, a few spare tins and, and, and cans of, of food just in case we're nowhere where I, I, rice, I need to be able pasta, to make a good meal up. Canned vegetables. Yeah, honey, rice, soy sauce, yeah. Worcester sauce, which I think is also called English sauce here for some strange yeah. reason. Um, do, 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 a few packets of things as well. Um, soups. And some soups. Yeah, quite a lot of stuff actually. So where's your clothes? <laughs> Again, I don't need clothes. Well, no, uh, we've clothes, only got we've only got we've literally now change. got one one and a half change of clothes each. So we've either got our motocross boots on. Um, we've got we've got we've got boots. one pair of shoes. So both of us have a fifty liter Tortex slash Ortlieb uh, dry bag on the back of the bikes. Now that's the best place I think for your clothes if you're doing a, a long kind of trip because they're the lightest thing and they'll be sitting on the back. And all you need to do if you do stay in somebody's home or you stop off at a motel, you just pick that bag off the back and yeah. you've got everything in there that you need for a night. Shoe, shoes are in a, in a in a small dry bag inside the larger bag um you've got your wash stuffs we have a couple of t-shirts for living in and for riding in trousers. we've got one pair of trousers one pair of shoes two pairs of socks two pairs of pants pair uh, of shorts. Uh, underpants that is one pair of shorts um and we do carry some one, of our th- one thermal fleece winter kit in there as well yeah yeah um and that's yeah that's pretty much about that um, and so we have one for me, for my clothes, one for her, one for Lisa's. Um, on the back behind there, we have one small roll bag, which carries a tent, um, which I carry. And then Lisa carries the mattresses and, and sleeping bags. bags. And that's it. And that's it. And what do you think the whole thing weighs for each bike? Less than a passenger. Um, I'm not sure. I'm guessing 620, 650. Six, With a bike as well, I would say. No, no, no. How, how much? How much do you think that your that your actual kit weighs? What payload do you think you're carrying? I mean, you, you got Simon. You have to have a fair bit because you've got your IT stuff in there. Yeah. Do you know what? The, weighty, the, 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 I, the IT stuff, the hard drives, probably weighs more than anything else put together. I mean, I've been carrying it for ages, but you know, when we were when we were doing the photographic stuff in New York, you know, I pulled all the stuff out and I began to lug it around in a in a in a, in a rucksack that I bought and. It, Lugging it round, I was constantly you know surprised what? how heavy that stuff is. I can, I can carry it all, like pick the bags out and carry them all off your bike and my bike. Whereas I don't think I could lift. I don't think I could lift a, a pillion, a passenger. So if it was like Simon and his weight, I don't think I could haul him around. Um, so I would say it weighs less than a person I mean, on if, the back of your bike. I think this is right. I mean, if we're heading into a friend's house for a few days or into a city-based hotel for a few days and we want to pull everything off the bikes, then literally what happens is we can make it to the hotel room or to, or to the room we're in, in one or two journeys because the tank bag 
get hooked up with a strap that goes over my neck and around my shoulders. Um, the two the two pannier bags uh, we carry. lift out and we carry in our hands. The silver um, dry bag with all our clothes goes, goes around, around shoulder. my shoulder. So we can um, carry it all. And that's it. I mean, and and that's it. That's the whole kit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're still amused when we see the photographs of on, online and, and people today are still posting images where I look at the bike and I, I'm thinking, where where do you sit? I think it looks like, some people say it looks like we carry a lot, but I think the way we've organized it is the lighter stuff is on top um, and easy accessible if you are just popping in somewhere for a night. You don't have to unpack everything. Um, and considering it's how we live, we carry, I think, less than a lot of guys do and they go away for a weekend. Well, pretty incredible anyway, because you're living, as you say, off the bikes. That is your home where most people are just yeah. out for their vacation and they're, they're going back home. So, you know, you can really pick and choose what you take. But I yes. think we've also refined it over the years. We, we keep on trimming it down. And then, of course, what happens, it builds up and somebody gives you something and, and then we refine it back down again. So constantly, uh, we're constantly... Re-vamping. It's a constant set of moving scales, yeah. but I mean, and again, but again, the reality is that we've been doing this for a really long time. Um, this this constant swapping of items in and out, where we have to strategically evaluate each piece of equipment and be pretty ruthless about what we do and don't carry, what we give away, what we buy, what what, what we accept from a sponsor. Do you have storage anywhere that you you keep any extra? Um, apparently my mother's just recently told me I've got some stuff in her loft, mm. um, which I suppose I should look at. <laughs> and I think, I think we've also got a few, a few odds, odds and sods at friends' houses actually in the USA. So a very good friend of ours, Jeff Reed, who works over at Continental, um, he actually, he actually accepted, uh, a pallet of, of old BMW parts that we took off the original, R1200 and F800 before we put on the modifications and the upgrades. Um, that was a pallet of parts, which is pretty cool because I mean, that's that's a lot of stuff. Um, there's a pair of shoes here and there. Um, it's like Christmas when somebody says to us, oh, do you know you've got this bag here? And we've often <laughs> and, and they And I say, well, no, what's in it? And they tell me and I'm like, oh, so exciting. Send it to us. If we've got an address and send it to us, we sort it out and realize actually, why did we keep all of that? <laughs> I've been speaking with Lisa and Simon Thomas, and that should give you some sort of insight into what some very experienced travelers carry in their panniers, and maybe it'll help adjust what you take. You can find out more about Simon and Lisa and follow their adventures at toridetheworld.com. And of course, as always, that link is in our show notes.
Today's episode was brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, and Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. And of course, anytime you're shopping with these guys, make sure you tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Hey, we would love to get your help out with the show. Sure, we get some advertising on here, but it's built as a model of advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. Drop by our website, click on the support button. We get a bunch of different ways to do it. If you're interested, do it at one time. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker sent back at you for your pannier, your garage door, your toolbox, wherever you want to put it. Anything $50 or more gets you mentioned on the raw show and we would love it love it love it i would so encourage you to sign up for our patron monthly support that way we can count on it each month and help out the show we can help grow we can do all kinds of things with this anyway i really appreciate you listening thank you very much now it's time to get out there and ride your bike i'm jim martin this is adventure rider radio see you next week hi i'm liz jansen from lizjansen.com And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.